Hey, welcome to night school. Taking a night walk. You know, for the last couple of months, I've been living in my house with no neighbors around. The people next door moved out, and the people on the other side of them, I don't know who they are. They moved in about a year and a half ago, and I have not seen life there for months. I see lights on at night, but I think they're people who live elsewhere and keep a house here because nobody's living there. Nobody comes and goes. There's no life there whatsoever. So, and then on the, on the other side of me, there's no house. There's kind of a green belt before you get to another house. And then the people across the street from me, there's a couple houses and they're older. You don't really see much of them, which isn't that desolate or anything. It's not like I'm completely isolated in the middle of nowhere. But I do think there's something extra desolate when you've been next to just completely abandoned houses for the last couple months. And not abandoned in the sense that they're, they've been left behind to deteriorate, but just someone, whoever bought it hasn't moved in yet. Whatever the arrangement is, I have no idea. But it's like that idea of like, it wouldn't, yeah, you know, there's, there's a different feeling to being in the middle of the woods by yourself. There's a different feeling to being in a rural house where you're just surrounded by wilderness or nature or undeveloped land and you don't, you don't have any neighbors. But when you live next to houses and they're empty, there's something extra desolate about that because it's a place that you know is supposed to have people in it. And when it doesn't for a long period of time, especially right now, I think under normal circumstances, I wouldn't even care or notice. But with the situation being what it is right now, which, I don't know, I, I have this sense of dread in my stomach the last couple of days. And it's a very physical sensation, because while I have always have things that I can and do worry about, this is a very physical sort of feeling where... You know, even if I if I get away f completely from mental worries and mental distress, like just this this uh, it feels like my stomach is just a fist, a clenched fist. Not sure what to do about it, if anything, except ride it out. But something does feel extra desolate lately, and I feel that going out too, even though it's now officially summer. You know, we had a 110 degree day, which is unheard of here, and lends itself to everybody's perversity surrounding climate change and all of that, which, for you know, it very well, it very well might be a symptom of something like that. I don't know. But leading up to that, you know, last weekend, the whole weekend was in the hundreds and it got up to 108 and then 110, 111 a couple of the days. And you could see like the anticipation for that where a certain type of person was almost happy that it was happening in a strange way because it confirmed their story. It gave them a chance to preach and be like, see, the apocalypse is upon us. And I'm not saying it's not, but it's just one of those things where you can see where people have this certain perversity. People who... I would say deep down maybe are genuinely concerned. They're genuinely concerned about the world warming up. But there's a part of them that I think kind of gets 
a little bit of a thrill out of saying, hey, look, this weekend it's going to be 110 degrees. Because it makes them feel right. It makes them feel like they can kind of preach about that. But then it dropped 40 degrees in two days, which is insane. It was 110 on Monday. And by Wednesday, it was like 70 degrees. It was about 70, de 70 degrees in gray today. This is your weather report. Your Washington weather report. But that's, I mean, that is kind of just an insane contrast. Because there was a part of me that really liked the 110 degrees. It was such an event. And yeah, there's a part of me that was concerned about wildfire, concerned about all kinds of things, concerned about the plants outside my house, animals, you know, just about everything. So it's not like I'm happy that things are excruciatingly hot in a place that doesn't typically get that hot. But I guess there is, you know, it was so out of the ordinary that I sort of enjoyed the event of it all. Like it felt like you had to be you know, responding to the elements all day one way or another. Whether it's, you know, staying cool or, you know, it's kind of like your entire day is scheduled for you when it gets that hot. Your day is structured for you. And so we have this massive drop. Now it's like 70 degrees. Uh, you know, that could play a role. That could play a role in how I'm feeling. I don't know. People always talk about pressure changes. And I never really know what that means. I never know how that actually plays out in my body. But people talk about it, so maybe there's something to it. But yeah, just to finish the thought about the houses. It's not just the two houses that are next to me that, are, that have been empty. There's also a house down at the end where there was an old lady living there. And I guess, you know, during Coronivi, which I'm not even sure where we're at with that. You know, I really have no idea where we're at the, with that other than the fact that I don't have to wear a mask anywhere anymore. But during Coronavirus, I kind of enjoyed the regularity of knowing certain people lived in certain places and you knew, you knew they were there. You know, you knew they were there. And just recently there was this, an older lady, old lady living down at the end of the block and it's not a very long block so there's not that many houses. I noticed that they had an estate sale and that house is completely empty. And you know, it, it just brings me down, not to make this a downer episode, but I think it's going to be. But what made me sad about that is I remember, I remember seeing that lady kind of on her porch because she had this Siamese cat and I grew up having Siamese cats. And uh, her, her cat's name was Mr. Daisy. I think I might've even talked about that cat on here. But Mr. Daisy was just this very strange little Siamese cat who, and his name is great, Mr. Daisy. But Mr. Daisy would, he'd always be perched on some rock across the street or kind of getting into trouble. Not bad trouble, but you could tell he was just a little bit of a troublemaker. And I would see his owner out there, this older lady, trying to call him in. And he would just be sitting there defiant. And then at some point last year, maybe about a year ago, I saw missing flyers for Mr. Daisy. But then the flyers went down the next day, which made me think that they must have found him. Because who puts flyers out for one day only? But uh, that lady must have died or been sent to a home or something because they had an estate sale. And then I've seen people 
cleaning up the house. It's totally empty. It's totally vacant. So on a, ha on a block that has, let's say there's eight to 10 houses on my side of the street, you know, three of those are completely empty. And I don't even know who lives in the rest of them. You know, I used to, I used to kind of have an idea who lived in the neighborhood, but it's one of those things that's gradual. Like when you go back to your childhood hometown and you're like, whoa, it's so different. You're hit with the suddenness of it. It's not gradual. You notice immediately that there are a lot of things that have changed. But I've noticed over the last year, you know, different, you know, for sale signs popping up in the neighborhood and you don't really pay attention. You see one for sale sign and it doesn't mean anything. But looking back, there were a lot of for sale signs on a lot of different houses. And walking through this neighborhood that, you know, my mom lived in for, I don't know, 16 years, close to 16 years, maybe around there. You know, I, there, there's history there. And, uh, you know, another one of the, another one of those people who lives in the, who lives on my side of the street is a, a 90 something year old lady. So it's, it's kind of an older person's neighborhood to begin with. But it's one of those things where just, you know, living next to empty houses, especially right now, because even when I go out, things feel strange. Like last night, a friend, a friend and I were walking dogs over at the Evergreen State College where I go often. And it was a nice, like, 70-degree day, cloudy. But we didn't see a single person there. We didn't see a single person on the field. There was not a soul there. And, you know, it's summer, so... And then that's on top of the fact that very few people were there due to coronavi for the last year. But it just kind of feels like everywhere I'm going, I'm thinking like, I expect to see people and I don't. And I don't necessarily want to see people either. But then the people I see kind of reinforce this really kind of demented reality. Like on a recent mobile episode, I was... I got kind of quiet because there was a guy walking by ranting to himself. I don't know if you could hear it on the actual recording, but there was this guy ranting to himself. And he's this guy that I've, I've observed for the last year and a half or so. And I don't know if he's homeless or just, I mean, he's definitely insane. Doesn't come across like an addict so much. And he, he walks, and what's really strange is his routes are identical to mine. Like, I live at the end of town, like on the western side of Olympia, I live basically at the very end of town. There's not a whole lot past where I live. And this guy walks in that area, and it's kind of a, a difficult area because sidewalks just end and then appear. So you're, you're always kind of like having to cross streets and navigate. But this guy manages to walk the exact routes I walk. Like there's even some places that are in the woods, some trails that are out of the way. And I'll come across him there. And I've never seen him without his ski jacket. He basically wears this very heavy ski jacket with a hood up. And he's always carrying a uh, it used to be a paper bag, but lately I've seen him with plastic bags. And what he'll do is he'll go over to areas like I, the first time I ever saw him, he was less insane. Like, I, I think that the last year has done an absolute number on people. 
with existing mental illnesses as you would expect it to. But it, you know, he clearly always had something going on. But it, it, he seemed a little more together, you know, maybe a year, year and a half ago. And I would see him carrying this paper bag around and then he would stop and like go off the sidewalk into the bushes or into the woods. And I, I assumed that he was looking for mushrooms. I assumed that he was looking for psychedelic mushrooms. You know, a lot of people in this area go out looking for mushrooms, typically in the woods. I personally never have. You know, while I've consumed them, you know, I, I wouldn't even know where to look. And uh, I, I assume that's what this guy was doing, but now I'm not so sure, you know, because I still see him doing that. I still see him, you know, going into the bushes, going into the woods, looking for something. And he always has a bag with him, at least usually two bags, actually. And so it's just a little bit strange how, you know, he's, he's always collecting something, but he could be collecting anything. But then recently, like since Coronavi, I feel like even, not even just during Coronavi, but even just in the last few months when I see him, he looks like a beekeeper. I don't know if it's because his hood is pulled down really low and he has like a, a normal mask on, a normal Coroni mask. I don't know what it is that makes him look like a beekeeper, but you can't see his eyes. So it looks, it almost looks like he just has like a, a mesh screen. Like if you, if you ever saw those Halloween costumes where you're supposed to look like a hooded sorcerer or something, they have this kind of black mesh that covers your face and you can see through it, but people can't see you. It's like you're this hooded, yeah, some sort of hooded sorcerer. And so whatever's going on, like whatever sort of mask he's wearing and how he has the hood pulled, he really looks like like he's wearing either like a beekeeper sort of outfit or something. And, and what gets me is, you know, he's, he's wearing all this stuff in all conditions. You'll, you'll see him on a 90, de 90 degree day dressed like that. And that's impressive. That's like the monks you hear about who are, you know, impervious to cold or heat. Maybe he has something going on <laughs> that I, I'm not aware of. Or maybe he's just completely out of his mind. I don't know. But I saw him again today. I've seen him twice today. I saw him twice tonight. Not even just today. I've seen this guy twice in the last two and a half hours. In completely different places. Like I said, he manages to go to the exact same places I do. But not in the way that would make me paranoid that he's somehow following me or anything. We just coincidentally pass by each other often. And I guess I have a bad taste in my mouth about him because one time I was walking Batty and we were on a trail and he came about, he, he came about with his bags. I mean, he looks like a cartoon character almost. It's weird. Like the way he like, he's like swinging these bags around. It's almost like some, yeah, he seems like a cartoon character. And when we passed him, when Batty and I passed him, Batty kind of snarled at him and he might have maybe let out a little bark. And the guy snarled and barked back. It was like, he kind of like like laughed and he, he snarled and barked back, but it wasn't cool. It wasn't okay. You know, I felt put off by it. I was like, don't do that. You know, my dog, I have a chihuahua. He, he sometimes snarls at people and other dogs and you know, these, these mystical sorcerer beekeepers who collect God knows what in grocery store bags every day.
But Batty just gave him a little snarl. Pretty minor by Batty's standards. And the guy was like, I'm not going to mimic it. But the guy basically made the same sound back at Batty. And it, it didn't piss me off, but it's just kind of like, I found it vaguely threatening, I guess. Like that's not something, like if somebody's dog barks at you, you don't bark back at it. Unless you're a psycho. And so that kind of put me off on this guy. Like before he was just kind of an oddity, but when he snarled back at Batty, I was just like, hey, why'd you do that? Yeah, I know you're out of your mind, but still. I mean, I judge people who are out of their mind the same way I judge everybody else. And there are cool, crazy people, and there are uncool, crazy people. And when he snarled back at Batty, it was uncool to me. And then today I saw him on a trail earlier, just a couple hours ago, like I was saying. And I, you know, I have a, a, kind of my own rule, I know I've talked about it before, where... I believe the sidewalks and trails should follow the same rules as the road. Where if you're walking down a sidewalk or a path, hug the right side. Hug the right side just like a car drives on the right side in America. If you're in England, do the reverse. If you are in the UK or a country that drives on the left side of the road, do the reverse of what I'm saying. But in the country that you're in, you should move about in, in general. I mean, if you have the sidewalk to yourself, do what you want. But if there are other people, you should basically follow the same system and rules as the road does. And it works. Go to the left to pass people. This way you won't run into that situation where you and that person are on the same side of the sidewalk going straight at each other. And you do that little dance trying to figure out who's going to move. And sometimes, you know, sometimes I'm very accommodating. Sometimes, you know, in that situation, I'll just move, even though I have my own little weird rules about the sidewalk, it's not like I'm an asshole about it. And I'll, I'll get out of someone's way. Like, even if I'm on the right side and they're on the left side coming toward me, they don't know the rules. They never, they never, you know, they're not insane enough. I mean, speaking of insanity, they're not insane enough to come up with the rules of the sidewalk and the rules of trails like I come up with, but I'll get out of someone's way. But then sometimes, you know, it depends. Like sometimes I just feel like standing my ground and deciding like, let's see if they move. I'll just see, you know, I'm not too worried, you know, about a fight coming of it or anything, but sometimes I just think I'm just going to stay on the right side and see if that person gets out of my way. And so that's what I did with this guy today. Like he was coming toward me looking like a beekeeper like I couldn't tell if he even saw me because maybe he doesn't see anything you know with whatever's covering his face you know I have no clue what this guy can see or not see and so I don't know if he even saw me coming or what it was but you know either way I was like you know I'm just gonna see what happens if I don't get out of his way but I mean he wasn't moving and not in an aggressive way either you know it wasn't an aggressive thing uh, it was just he just wasn't moving, you know, and uh, so I, I did move, and then he, he said something. He said, like, hey, or something, you know. Uh, I don't think this guy's out to hurt anybody. I don't, I don't get the impression he's dangerous, because there are some guys who live in the woods around here who I, I really try not to, I wouldn't want to be on a path with them. There's hostile energy emanating from them, screaming, demons coming out of them. 
not that I judge them for that, but that's just the experience you have with those people. And it's an experience you'd rather not have because you don't know which way it's going to go. But with this guy, he seems pretty harmless. And whatever he's looking for, he's not stealing from anybody. Whatever he's filling those grocery store bags with. you know. But I, I felt like a dick afterward. Like even though I ultimately got out of this guy's way in this little game of chicken that it turns out I was playing with myself. Because I don't think this guy had any concept of... I don't think this guy even thinks about anything. I mean, I don't mean that. I just mean I don't think he... I don't think that guy was walking toward me thinking like, let's see if he gets out of the way. I just think this guy's pretty oblivious to anything like that. And he's walking continuously. And then just a little bit ago, I had to run to the store and come back. And sure enough, I see him walking just right down the street from my house, but kind of on the other side. Like I saw him on like, you know, I saw him on a diff I saw him in a different area. And then I saw him over here and I'm just like, there he is again. And I mean, I wouldn't be completely surprised if I see him before this walk is over. I'm just kind of curious. I'm curious if he lives somewhere. I'm curious, you know, what's going on as far as uh, this guy's situation. But that's the reason I bring it up, though, is just because, you know, I feel like there's a certain feeling of desolation creeping in again. And it's kind of combined with this fact that nobody's really communicated what's going on, if anybody even knows. And I don't think they do, because people are improvising most of the time. And I think they're improvising more than usual right now. And I think there's a, a tiredness. Like I've had a difficult time, like it's not like people come to me all the time with their problems, but lately a few friends are having issues and came to me and I was just kind of like, you know, I don't, I didn't say this to them, but I've just, I just really don't have the energy right now, and I don't like that. I like to have the energy to listen to people. I like to have the energy to say something meaningful or to just acknowledge it. And I've done that, but it's just, I don't feel like I'm invested. I don't feel like I have the energy to be invested in what's going on with too many people. And you know what? It feels the same way coming from them. Like it's a, It feels like that's a two-way street right now where it's difficult for anybody to think too much about anyone else. And I, I don't blame them for that. I think about myself all the damn time. But it's something to be aware of. And I am happy that things haven't gotten violent. Maybe that's what the vaccine did do. Maybe the vaccine, the only conspiracy angle to it was that it prevented people from getting extremely violent this year. Because, you know, I predicted and was wrong about that. I, a few months ago, I was saying, I've, I can taste it in the air. Gas prices are rising. Gas prices are rising. There's shootings back to back. When I go for walks at night, I can see the hot rods out revving their engines. People want to fight. You know, I was saying stuff like that. And so far, I haven't seen much of it. If people are particularly violent or aggressive right now, I'm not hearing about it and I'm not seeing too much of it. Of course, it's always there. I mean, it's always possible, but I would have thought that we would have been just swamped in aggression. But you can see where a lot of that had to do with... Ah, I'm not going to get into it. I'm not going to get into politics here. But, uh, yeah, people were pretty... I don't know. I was feeling a building tension 
And then suddenly everyone got the vaccine and I don't feel it anymore. I don't sense it anymore. Even though there's people who are messed up, even though there are still people doing violent things and being aggressive, it's funny, like around the time that everybody got the vaccine or people started getting it, around the time I got it, suddenly everybody's less aggressive, it feels like. Maybe that's just me. Maybe that's just where I'm looking. But if the vaccine has any, you know, one, if, there, if there's one conspiracy theory that I'll buy into with the vaccine, and I support people who don't want it. I support people who don't want to take the vaccine. But the one conspiracy theory that I will believe is that it was used to neutralize some of the building hostility. They were like, we got to give these people some kind of shot. They're at each other's throats. So maybe that explains it. Maybe that's why I was wrong. But no, instead of violence right now, I'm just feeling like there's a certain desolation in the air. And I mentioned before how, you know, now is the time where you're going to start seeing some of the damage that's been done. The damage to people's relationships, not just to them as individuals, but you're going to start seeing some of the damage that's been done to people's relationships if you haven't already seen it. And I, and I think people are resilient, though. I mean, people are resilient, and we'll see people figure things out, and it'll, it will be impressive. But we're also going to have to see a lot of damage first. And I don't think we've been able to properly survey the damage. I don't think we've been given the opportunity. And I don't know how much of it's deliberate. You know, I'm not one of these people who, at every opportunity, says, the government doesn't want you to see what's really going on. Even though they don't. Even though governments do that, and our government does that, I'm not someone who always assumes the government is deliberately keeping A, B, or C from people. I do believe sometimes they amplify X, Y, and Z to keep you from paying attention to A, B, and C. But without an insider revealing that, how do you really know what's going on in those meetings? And so-called conspiracy theorists, a.k.a this catch-all word now for people who don't agree with you but so-called conspiracy theorists what's funny about them though is like they tend to believe they know a lot of what's going on behind the scenes like I can totally get behind the idea of being like hey did you notice this or hey we have some information about this that conflicts with this you know I understand like commenting from your own perspective, like commenting from your own point of view and being like, hey, did you ever notice how our government said this, but they did this and how this guy was involved? Like, I totally understand putting the pieces together that you can find, but it's always funny when it verges into like saying, you know, exactly what the intention was saying, like, you know, what sort of meeting was held or what sort of conversation was had in these you know, back rooms in the Pentagon or wherever it is people have these meetings. Um, you know, just assuming that you know the exact intention, I think, is where people mess up. And they tend to see conspiracy where there's actually chaos. And chaos is actually scarier 
than a conspiracy to most people, which is why some people do use conspiracy theories as a safety blanket, because the idea that the government is just dealing with an avalanche of chaos every second of every day that a given government exists is actually a scarier idea than, oh, the government knows what it's doing. Like in the same way that you might, you might, I don't know, it kind of plays into what I've said before about sometimes people are more upset by somebody they don't understand than someone they hate. Because at least they know how to feel about the person they hate. And I think it's kind of similar with conspiracy theories where the idea that the government or any force, any institution, any group, any individual for that matter, you know, the idea that they are doing something very deliberate and well strategized with a very specific intention, even if it's an evil intention or a manipulative, power-hungry intention, that is more comforting to some people than the idea that governments exist in the first place just as some way to cope with the chaos of nature, to cope with just the chaos of who we are as people individually, and then you put us all together in a society and give us a name. And it's like governments are, on a basic level, just trying to deal with the chaos of existence. And then, yeah, they do get into... You know, they do get into nefarious plots, of course. Those happen. But I also believe that they want you to think that there are more nefarious plots than there are because it makes them seem like they're in more control. Like, I think it actually benefits governments when people think that they have their thumb on top of everybody and they're doing whatever they want for whatever nefarious reason, then the idea that the government is simply doing their best in a lot of cases against just the unruly nature of existence and all of the potential conflict and struggle of that, you know, you know in that. But anyway, so I feel like I'm sympathetic toward conspiracy theorists, but I also, I don't, I'm not interested in that stuff. I'm not terribly interested, but I, I would buy into the idea that if anything, these vaccines contain some sort of like tranquilizer. <laughs> Although things don't feel exactly tranquil. Like I said, they feel more just kind of desolate, quiet, catatonic. You know, it's, it's a strange time in that way, especially because, you know, I don't feel like a lot is being communicated. I don't feel that much is being told to us, but not necessarily because someone is deliberately withholding information. I think it's because a lot of people don't know. They really just don't know. And that might be one of the reasons why, you know, you don't see more people out and about. And yeah, you know, all I know, the only, seriously, the only thing that I'm aware of is the fact that, you know, you don't have to wear a mask into a store right now. 
The only thing I'm aware of is that you can go into just about any store around here now without a mask. And my attitude toward that has always been easy come, easy go. I'm not going to get too hung up on the fact that I have to wear one of these. It's not going to be the battle that I'm going to fight. I don't want to waste my energy on the mask debate. I'll waste my energy on all kinds of other nonsense, but that's one that'll... You can see where it's drained people. Like, I have my own little neuroses, sure. And somebody could say, why are you even thinking about that? Which I ask myself all the time, but... You know, there's that. You know, there's your own private neuroses. But those don't necessarily drain you. You can have fun with those. They're in your grasp. But when it comes to something like the mask debate, while I think it's good for people to stand up against regulations they don't agree with, I just decided that wasn't going to be a battle I was going to fight. I was going to make it real easy. Easy come, easy go. I'm going to put the mask on easily. And then as soon as I noticed that people were able to, you know, go into stores unmolested without them, it was a, it was a good feeling. You know, I did enjoy that feeling as much as I didn't want to, like, dwell on it. I didn't want to dwell on the fact that I can reveal my face again in public. It did feel good walking into a store and, like, I looked around because at that point I wasn't sure. It was, you know, probably a month ago. But at that point I wasn't sure if they were going to be asking for your, you know, vaccine, passport, whatever nonsense was making its rounds at that time a month or two ago. And when I saw that they weren't asking anybody anything and people were just able to come and go, just like easy come, easy go. It was easy to put this thing on for a while and just not think about it. But just as easily, I'm going to take it off. I'm not going to be one of these people who's uncomfortable taking off my mask now. But you can see where you get attached to it. You know, people invested a lot of energy. And that's why I say it would have been so draining to fight that battle. It would have been so draining to challenge the mask regulations for me. Because people were so invested in it one way or another. And so I deliberately did not invest in that. And uh, it still felt good, though, to know that I could just take it off. But that's the only thing I do know. It's all I know. You know, the problem with information overload is that we're not necessarily ready to process that level of information. And I wouldn't be surprised if the last year and a half was the most information-heavy period in any human being's life. And let's say the average human being's life. I would bet you that the height of coronavi lockdown the height of the political conflict. I would bet that that was the most oversaturated the average citizen has ever been in information because they were addicted to the news and what was going on and what this pundit was saying, what this person they follow was saying, what these people are doing, the sorts of fun activities these people are doing in coronavirus. I bet that was the the most information that the average person has ever been exposed to in, let's say, a year period. Because they were just sitting there consuming information. And I don't think people are meant to do that yet. I think people will come to adapt. 
I think we've always adapted to new amounts of information. You know, you think about like the TV and newspapers and the printing press, and that gave people access to more information than they knew how to deal with at a certain point in time, and they adapted. And I believe the same will happen with this. But in the meantime, I've got no clue. Until people do adapt to this amount of information saturation. And you can see where some of the censorship and just the, the general push for control of information, while some of it was obviously politically biased, had an obvious political agenda, you can also see where it was also just about the control of pure information and the amount of information that's available. And it was decided by certain powerful people. Again, I don't know if it was in some back room, but there does seem to be some level of consensus. And it might it might just be them trying to deal with the chaos. You know, these uh, social media or CEOs, or more likely their board of directors, whoever makes the actual decisions at these places, you know, they very well might have gotten together and said, we need to find a way to deal with all this chaos. And one of the ways of dealing with that is to set certain parameters over what information people can be exposed to because there's simply so much. I mean, I think I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt and their social and political biases you know, actually played a huge role in how they define those parameters. But I do think there was a part of them that was just trying to deal with chaos. The chaos of just nonstop information. The chaos of more and more people sharing information, accessing information. And then everything escalated during this period where everybody was stuck at home obsessing over information. And one of the pitfalls of having too much information is that you start thinking you're an expert. First, you listen to the experts and you say, oh, I'm listening to the experts. But if you listen to enough experts, you know, you start thinking of yourself as one. And that's a huge trap. That's a trap you can fall into in any field. Anything that has different levels, anything that has, you know, experts or masters, you, know, you can easily fall into the trap of once you've you know learned from enough people you then think that you become that you're now qualified to become you know the teacher and maybe you are you know maybe you are qualified i don't know who's to say i mean there's a lot of you know kind of classic zen parables about that about teachers who tell their students, I'm not a teacher, what are you doing here? There's the famous one about an aspiring monk who goes to a monastery and asks to be taught by the master, and the master tells him he doesn't do that, he can't help him with that. And so the aspiring monk sits outside of the monastery, he sits on the steps, he fasts, he just hangs out there. And when the master sees him, he just says, oh, you're still here? But that itself becomes the test. You know, the, the dedication that that aspiring student had. He was so dedicated that he was willing to just sit on the steps and completely 
humble himself, humiliate himself in some way in order to gain enlightenment, I guess. And I think, the I don't remember how the end of that parable ends, but I do think the master invites him in and says, now you figured it out. He basically made him wait. He taught him nothing. Or maybe that story goes, you know, I'm, I'm forgetting. But maybe this, maybe at the end of it, the student thanks the master and says, I understand now. The master might not even say anything. The student is just like, thank you, I understand now. Meanwhile, the master did nothing. But I do think sometimes you can listen to so many experts and consume so much information that you yourself become convinced that you are an expert too. And when people say, listen to the experts, which, you know, as a, as a phrase is beyond parody at this point, but when people say things along the lines of listen to the experts, what they're saying is I'm an expert in experts. Because in order, in order to listen to the right experts, you kind of have to be an expert in experts. Otherwise, who are you going to listen to? How are you going to know where to listen? You got to be an expert in expertise. And there are some of those. <laughs> there are people who, I mean, it's almost like a, you almost become like a book of references. You almost become like a, like a bibliography at that point. Like when you become an expert in other people's expertise, an expert expert, in some ways, you know, it's almost like you've become uh, basically a human bibliography. And a bibliography, you know, it's helpful if, if it goes along with an actual published text or set of ideas. But a bibliography on its own doesn't tell you much. And that's how people sound when they tell you, listen to the experts. Here's a bibliography. Here's a list. Here's a reading list. Meanwhile, you're given no context. But... You know, I mean, that's one way that people deal with the oversaturation of information is just you, you become an expert in everything. You always have something to argue. You always have something to, to debate, to, give, to convince other people of. But I like that Zen story because it's the opposite. The idea is that even though this guy is a master, even though he is a Zen master, that's what people regard him as. He doesn't do anything. <laughs> he just makes this aspiring student wait. It's like someone rings your doorbell and they're like, I'm looking for Johnny. And you say, Johnny doesn't live here. And they just hang out on your front porch for weeks. And for some reason, you don't call the cops on them. And then finally, after three or four weeks, they ring the doorbell again and you answer and they say, thank you so much. You put me in contact with Johnny. Meanwhile, you've just been inside your house living your normal life. And you're like, wait, what? 
I didn't help you. And sometimes not helping somebody is the thing that helps them. I mean, that, that comes up in addiction counseling. That comes up from you know, interventions where they teach you after a certain point, you know, there's only so much you can do and it's up to the individual whether they're not get, whether they're going to get help or not. And if you've been aiding an addict, you know, you have to stop helping them and give them the opportunity to help themselves. And I think it's the same thing with information. I think it's the same thing with expertise. I think it's the same with mastery. That just like that Zen master didn't really do anything. Not doing anything was the thing that forced the aspiring student to learn something. To add a little punctuation on the end of that walk talk you just listened to, about a block after I hit stop, after I stopped the recorder, I came upon a car that I'd seen an hour earlier. I had run an errand about an hour and a half ago, and I, as I was coming back into my neighborhood, after I saw the beekeeper again, I'd seen the beekeeper walking again, and as I pulled into my neighborhood, there was a car driving in the oncoming lane like they were in my lane driving toward me so they were going the wrong way down my street and they were kind of stopped there they weren't driving fast from what I could tell if they were driving at all they were driving slowly but they were in the oncoming lane and there was no reason to be there there was no real reason to be there because the two lanes are completely separate you couldn't even swerve into the oncoming lane if you wanted because there's a medium a median, a median or a medium. There was a medium median. And so you can't even swerve into the oncoming lane if you want to, but there are, there's little separations and stuff, but you, you either have to deliberately do that or be so fucked up that you have no idea what you're doing. And as I was approaching, this car did manage to veer into the right lane. And I thought about calling them in, but I was like, I don't, they could have been pulling out of a driveway and just stopped for a minute. They could have been doing anything. I didn't worry about it. I just went home. And then as I was finishing up that walk, the one you just were privy to, I hit stop, and then I got closer to my house. I got to my block. And keep in mind, it had been over an hour since I saw that car driving in the wrong lane. And I see that car again, but now they're on my block. And it's a white, probably an Altima. I don't really know cars, but if I had to guess, I would say it was probably an Altima. A white car with very dark tinted windows. And it was the same car, there's no question. And I saw them driving, creeping. They were creeping along my block. And I was like, oh, that's that car again. And they're still being weird an hour later in my neighborhood.
So either they stayed in the neighborhood or they left and came back. Either way, it's no good. And I looked at him, you know, and I'm the only person walking on the street and it's after dark, but I I just kind of looked at him and they stopped right next to me. They just stopped. And I look, I I tried to look, you know, I wasn't trying to provoke them or anything, but I I tried to see in the car and I didn't see anybody because the windows are so black. The windows are so dark being tinted. And and then I just continued on. I was like, well, nothing's going to, nothing good is going to come from me keeping on trying to look in the windows. I mean, I, I don't mean that I walked up to the car and was peering into the windows. I just mean that I turned my head and was looking at them. And then right after they stopped, they, and they were stalled for a good, like 30 seconds, a significant amount of time for the situation right next to me, they stopped. And then they started to drive away, and then they turned their lights off. And if you listen to that episode a few weeks ago, a month ago, however long ago that was, it was called The Shape. And in that episode, I was talking about how one of my greatest fears is cars driving with their lights off at night. And I'm not going to retell the story of The Shape up in the mountains of Canada, but it was a, I believe, a Jeep or a small SUV with its lights off just weaving through the Canadian mountainous highway at night. And it was eerie. It was like a ghost ship that had gotten untethered. And you're like, is that thing just going to bang into things? And two, like on that on that drive with the shape, my friend and I kept looking behind us, and you could tell they were changing lanes, which made it that much creepier. It's that much creepier when a car that's driving for a long period of time without headlights is just kind of slowly changing lanes. It is like a ghost ship, and you're just like, are they going to be just banging into people? Are they just going to ram into things? Do they have any control at all? So the fact that I have this kind of phobia, and it's half-joking. I mean, of course it's not. Of course I'm not just gripped with fear when I see someone without headlights on at night. But it is something that I find disturbing, and it's usually indicative of something going on with them. They're either up to something deliberately, they're deliberately up to something no good, or they're so fucked up, they don't realize that they have their headlights off. And as I've explained before, it's very easy to drive a block without your headlights on. It's very easy to get in your car at night and just forget to turn your headlights on. And you suddenly feel that something is wrong. And then you're like, oh yeah, my headlights are off. But you pick up on that feeling that something was wrong within a minute. You know, you can't go very far, even with streetlights. And my neighborhood is so dark. I mean, I don't, I don't even need to justify why this disturbed me. Because this wasn't a car that just happened to be driving with its headlights off. They turned their headlights off after they saw me. After they stopped right next to me, they turned their headlights off and then continued driving. An hour after I saw them driving in the wrong lane, driving toward oncoming traffic. So clearly something's up with this person. So I did what I like to do, and I snitched. When it comes to suspicious vehicles, I am a rat. I will call the cops. I will do it. I don't keep track of how often it happens, because it's not often. But if I see a truly suspicious vehicle, I don't hesitate. And there's far less hesitation with cars for me than there are suspicious people. Like if someone's just walking down the street, they don't see... I mean, let's use the beekeeper as an example. The beekeeper is a guy who is just completely off his rocker and he wanders this neighborhood. 
He wanders the surrounding neighborhoods. He happens to walk very similar routes that I walk. Like, if you were to give both that guy and me one of those apps that shows you where you walk, it shows you a topographical map and shows you the route that you walk, you'd probably find that that guy and I are often walking the same route. But I would never think to call the cops on him. I would never be like, there's a guy and he he looks like a beekeeper. There's a guy who walks this neighborhood and he looks like a beekeeper and he carries bags and he wanders over into the bushes trying to collect something. There's no real reason to call the police on him. And I wouldn't want to. You know, I don't don't cherish calling the police. But I am unapologetic when I do it on suspicious vehicles. And not just like, oh, hey, cops, there's a car parked on my street that I don't recognize. You know, I'm not an idiot. But if somebody's driving, like if a car is moving, and if I see them driving with their headlights off for a significant amount of time, or if they deliberately turn them off after doing a bunch of other sketchy stuff on my street, well, I'm definitely calling the cops. And so that was kind of a nice, it was kind of punctuation on the end of that episode, on the end of that walk talk. Because I was talking about dread, I was talking about desolation, I was talking about how my very block that I live on is very empty right now. There's a lot of old people, very old, the senior side of senior citizen in some cases. And there's also a few empty houses. There's three empty houses on a small block. And then I come up to my block and there's a car driving very slowly and then they stop next to me and then turn their lights off. You know, it just adds the perfect punctuation to that feeling of dread. And it's not an exclamation point. It's ellipses. It's a dot, dot, dot. Because I feel like dread is best punctuated by ellipses. I mean, when does dread have an exclamation point? I mean, maybe it's sometimes, sometimes dread, often dread has ellipses followed by a question mark. In which case, do you put two dots or three? Because the question mark has its own dot at the bottom. I bet somebody knows the answer to that. But yeah, it added the perfect ellipses punctuation to my feeling of dread. And then to add to that, to make that even better, I tried calling 911 from my cell phone. And it it would ring, and then it would just go silent. And it would say I was on the line with 911, but there was no voice. There was no sound of a phone being answered. There was no background noise. It would just ring a few times and then go silent. And I did that. I, called, I tried 911 twice that way, and the same thing happened. And I was able to get through finally from a different phone. And I just reported. You know, the thing is, I wish I had recordings of my snitch calls. I wish that I had copies that I could play on here of my snitch calls. I probably sound like a 60 year old man. I called up tonight and I said, Hi, I'm, I'm reporting a suspicious vehicle. On 6th Avenue? I saw them approximately one hour ago. I probably sound like the person driving that car. I probably sound like a sociopath. But no, I I, uh, I just was like, There's, there was a sp- suspicious vehicle. I'd like to report a suspicious vehicle. I try to sound as proper as I can on 911 calls. 
And you never know. I mean, that's, you know, it's kind of like being in court. You never know if your call is going to be played back. Like, because they, they always ask you, do you want to be called back? And I always say no. And in this case, I bet I sounded super 60 years old, super 60 years old, because they were like, do you want to get a call back if we discover anything? And I said, only if it pertains to the neighborhood. Only if it pertains to Grass Lake. If it doesn't pertain to my neighborhood, no need to call me back. But if it, if, if they were doing something suspicious in my neighborhood or if they committed a crime and it involved my neighborhood, please let me know. But uh, who, who knows? You know, I don't know that I've ever gotten a call back. Well, I mean, and, and because I don't ask for one. When they ask me, I say no. But I've never even gotten a follow-up call that I can think of. I don't think I've ever even gotten a follow-up call where they ask more questions. Can you describe the car in more detail? And my attitude on it, my philosophy on it, is that let's say that car gets stopped tonight and they weren't. there's nothing obviously wrong. Like there's no obvious... There, there was no obvious crime being committed. There's nothing blatantly suspicious about what they were doing. Let's say they weren't doing anything. Let's say that car was not doing anything wrong. I mean, they were. They were driving wrong. But let's say they weren't doing anything else wrong, and there's some sort of explanation for why they were driving so suspiciously in my neighborhood. My neighborhood. Well, they have a minor inconvenience. Maybe next time they won't behave so suspiciously. Maybe next time they won't pull up next to random pedestrians and turn their lights off. Maybe next time they won't drive into oncoming traffic. Maybe they won't hang out driving through the same neighborhood for an hour doing those things next time. If they were doing nothing wrong and they now have the minor inconvenience of being pulled over by a cop and questioned, I don't feel bad. I don't feel bad because there was a reason why I called. I don't just pick a random car and say, hmm, maybe I should report them. There's a level of statistical probability that says if I pick a random car every day to call 911 about, there's a statistical chance that it will eventually be a bad guy. Well, that might be true. I mean, I, I, I don't do that. Somebody has to be driving very suspiciously for me to call, but once I see someone driving suspiciously, I don't, I don't hesitate. I figure, why take a chance? To quote Casino, why take a chance? But, uh, you know, I don't know. It was a good, a good time to get home, I felt like. A good time to get home. You know, it's, it's not good to wander around too much with a feeling of dread, even though that's sometimes the only thing you can do. Sometimes the only thing you can do is go for a walk. Sometimes the only thing you can do is talk. And right now, I think that I, I mean, while I do this show, I mean, obviously in bursts, you know, I don't, there's no real schedule to this, but there are a lot of bursts where there's a lot of episodes at once, and it's kind of been that way for a while. It's, I'm glad that, you know, I don't know, sometimes it's good to be able to just uh, report things. Sometimes I like that this show allows me to simply report something like that. Even though nobody might care, it's fun. It's, there's something fun about being like, you wouldn't believe I just got off the phone with 911. 
911. And I'm just letting you, the listener, know that I'm a snitch. I'm a snitch when it comes to suspicious vehicles. Not for a lot of other things, but I've made my opinion on driving and driving safely very clear. And if there's anything that can add punctuation to a prolonged feeling of dread, it's seeing a car behave suspiciously in my immediate environment. Excuse me while I vape. This is a... I don't know, my friend, she'll give me her vape pens, her, her tobacco, nicotine vape pens when they're on fumes. And it's her way of, like, not getting me addicted. But I bought one. I bought another one. She found this new brand. It has a really dumb name. It's called Flum Float. And the flavor is Red Bang. And it's shaped like a pill. It's it's made to look like a pill. It's half red, half white. With a little mouthpiece. And it looks like a pill, and it's called Red Bang because it's Red Bull flavored. So yeah, I'm now experiencing Red Bull flavored vape. I like that it's called Red Bang, though. Maybe it's a Red Bull slash Bang hybrid flavor. Maybe it was designed for me. I like that it looks like a pill. But yeah, she told me uh, not to buy these. Like She'll give me the, the ones she has with fumes. But, you know, and I mean, I can't justify spending money on these. I truly cannot justify spending money on nicotine vapes, and I can't justify getting addicted to it. And I feel like I've managed it pretty well, but I I just needed it tonight. I needed uh, some sort of fixation. Because, too, when I have this feeling of dread, I don't eat. And I, I actually find it difficult to do much of anything. I find that it's, it's, I feel electric, I feel lit up, I feel a certain amount of anxiety that keeps me moving, but I can't focus on a particular task, like cleaning is good, if you can actually commit your, when you're feeling dread or anxiety, if you can commit yourself to cleaning, that's one of the best things you can do, and it's pretty mindless. And I did a little bit of that today. I did do some cleaning, but I've had a difficult time today focusing on anything. It's not even a night where I feel like browsing the internet. You know what I mean? It's, it's like one of those nights where you don't even feel like doing your normal mindless things. And I feel like talking. But yeah, what do you do with that? What What do you do... With uh, Well, and uh, just one more thought about that car. That's another angle, like another reason why I mentioned earlier in the in the walking part of the episode. Now episodes are going to have a walking portion and a studio portion. Every episode from now on is going to be a tandem. I sure hope not. I really hope not. I don't have the time. So I, don't, I don't even know how I have the time for this. I really don't know how I have the time or I don't, I don't, I don't even know how I'm so dedicated to doing this. I don't know I don't know where it comes from or why but it's for the virgin alien monks that's right sometimes I forget why I do this 
And the reason why I do this is that is so that when virgin alien monks fly their fly their flying saucers, which is a redundant way of saying it, when they bring their flying saucers here, I want and we're gone. When Earth is just dust, sand and dust. I mean, if you if you pile up enough sand, or sorry, if you pile enough, <laughs> if you pile up enough dust, does it just become sand? Could you have a beach of dust? Probably. I mean, I feel like you could actually have that, but I've never seen that. I guess it just becomes fluff. I guess it just becomes like a giant dust bunny. So much for my beach of dust idea. Um, but uh, when the earth is just nothing but sand and dust in a hundred years, in, in, in two years, and those virgin alien monks visit and they're like, there's signs of an ancient civilization here. Oh, there's, there's a recorded record. I want them to have access to this. I want them to have access to these recordings and I want them to learn about our species through me. I'm doing this for the virgin alien monks so that they can learn when there's no longer any human being to teach them. I want there to be a record. But the other thing about uh, relating to like most of my neighborhood, it feels like being empty. My block having relatively few people living on it right now, it being dark there being multiple houses that don't have any tenants, that attracts people. That attracts the wrong people. Like the house next door, the first guy to ever live there, the guy who lived there for years, he became like a brother to my mom. He was a, a, middle-aged, a, a middle-aged gay man who became very close to our family. He would have these big raging parties. He was this respected guy in the community. He was a, a businessman and a very uh, open gay man. And he loved to drink. And so he would have these big parties at his house where he would have he would supply all the alcohol. And so I would bring friends and we would go there. My mom would even go. She didn't drink, but she would go over there. And then he died in that house. You know, he partied hard and he died in that house. And it was empty for a couple of years, some years back. And the elements just started to claim it. That was very interesting because the elements just slowly started to claim this house. A pretty well taken care of house, not a very old house, you know, a relatively new subdevelopment, houses that were built within the last, you know, less than 20 years. But you could watch the elements start to consume this house where he had died and it had been left empty. But then people also knew that it was empty, so people would break in. Even though there was nothing there, people would break into the house a lot. I think there were squatters at one point, but people would also just break in. And with abandoned houses, or not not abandoned, but with empty houses, houses that are waiting for new tenants, you never know what's in them. While some of them you can tell are completely bare, you never know if some of them have something in them. And then also that makes it easier to break into houses next door. It's not necessarily that a burglar is trying to break into the empty house, especially if it has nothing in it. But what a burglar really enjoys... What makes a burglar's job very easy is when there's an inhabited house next to an empty house. 
or in this case, there's a bunch of empty houses. It makes it more likely that they won't get caught if they break into one of the inhabited houses, if that person's not home. So, you know, that's something that adds to my feeling of dread is just, it's not good to live on a block where there's a lot of empty houses right now, but I'm not too upset about it. I just, I keep an eye out. And so does Batty. Batty keeps a good eye out. He keeps an ear out. He has very large ears, which are great for hearing even just footsteps outside. But there's so many little things that the average person doesn't necessarily think of when it comes to safety. Like I always tell people, never discuss a planned vacation outside of your house while you're staying. Like, like never discuss the fact that you're going out of town when you're standing in front of your house talking to your neighbor. Or don't be on the phone standing in front of your house talking about a vacation. Don't ever communicate out loud outside of your house that you're not going to be there for a significant amount of time. Never talk about your work schedule in front of your house. I mean, yeah, if somebody cases your house, they can figure out your schedule. But for the most part, it's a bad idea. It's a bad idea to discuss plans you have to be out of the house, you know, to go on vacation, to go to work, to have any obligation. You just don't want to do that. And one of the reasons isn't necessarily because there's a burglar waiting in the bushes for somebody to talk about a vacation they have planned. <clears throat> one second. It's because you might have neighbors that you can't trust. You know, I had some people years ago who broke into the neighbors across the street. They broke into their house. And those neighbors came over. The neighbor, I knew the neighbor, and he came over to my house, and he was like, hey, our house was broken into earlier today, and I'm just checking to see if you know anything or you see, if you saw anything. And I said, no. And he said, we think it's the people next door. They live next to this duplex that kind of had uh, people coming and going, a, a, just kind of tenants coming in and out, and they had a bad rapport with the people who lived there when this happened. And they had dogs at the house, but apparently the dogs didn't do anything. Someone broke into the house and stole quite a bit of stuff, but the dogs didn't do anything, even though these are big dogs. Like these dogs used to bark at me across the street. They weren't vicious, but they definitely defended their property. And so he suspected that it was the people next door because the dogs were used to those people. The dogs were used to those people because their fence was, they shared a chain link fence. The dogs could see that those people belong in the area at the very least. And maybe they get along with the dogs, I don't know. But they strongly suspected that, that the next door neighbors broke in. And so that's what I'm getting at here is like when you talk about your plans, and I mean, your neighbors are also the people who are going to know your schedule too. That's another thing about it. And it's not like you shouldn't trust your neighbors, but just don't loudly talk about your vacation plans. Don't loudly talk about times in which you'll be away from your house. It's a little thing that I've never heard anybody discuss, but it, it hit me one day. I don't know what it was or why it was that made me think that, but I was just like, yeah, that's that makes total sense. Don't discuss that sort of thing. The same goes for social media. You know, don't post about your, vac I mean, that's the thing about like people will post that they're on vacation 
And if someone untrustworthy sees that and they know they can find out where that person lives, I mean, you can type someone's name into Google these days and it might show where they live. There are all kinds of websites that track that, that track people's current and previous addresses. So if you post something publicly, if you post something on a public Instagram account or a public Facebook post anywhere where you let somebody know you're on vacation, they very well might find a way to get to your house. You never know. And that doesn't mean you shouldn't post vacation pictures or anything, but you should be aware of who has access to it. You should be aware of who can see that. And that's especially true for these people who have thousands of quote-unquote friends and followers. Especially since it became this, you know, at some point with social media, it became normal to add people who you don't know. And that's fine. That's, that's, I'm sure that I have people on there that I don't know. But when you start getting into like a thousand people, and if a lot of those people live in your town, like I know people who add everybody in town. I don't, I don't entirely understand why, but they'll add random people who live in this town who they're not friends with and they don't know. And that's where things get tricky because now you have somebody, some, somebody, now you have somebody, it sounds, it's oddly pleasing, somebody. It's like some sort of Elmer Fudd. But you now have a bunch of people who live in the same town as you who now know what you're up to. Who might know if you've left town. You don't need to be paranoid about it, but if you just keep it in mind. I mean, I think this applies to many things. Keeping it in mind. It's like me trying not to swear. I know that I'm not going to stop swearing. But if I keep it in mind, if I, if I remind myself that I don't want to swear all the time like I used to, I'll do it less. And I'll be aware of it when I do it. And I think it's the same thing for safety. And swearing is safety too. Not swearing is safe. Uh, But I think it applies to just practical safety, where the idea is that if you keep it in mind and follow the general rule, you're better off than if you didn't do that. You're more safe than if you didn't do that. I mean, it's like wearing a seatbelt. It's like if you occasionally don't wear a seatbelt when you're driving down to the store in your neighborhood, oh well. You don't want to make a habit of it. But if, you, if, if it's your habit to wear it, you're better off. And, and I mean, I don't think that you should be required to wear a seatbelt, but I'm just trying to use an, an example of safety, of being safe. I'm trying to think of, of other little tips. Believe it or not, nobody asks me for safety advice. What's another... What's while, while I'm getting into it, what's some other safety advice that I don't feel I've heard? At least not often enough. I mean, I've talked a lot about safety advice when you're walking at night. The way that... You can pretend to be looking at something else. Like, you have to use the mobility of your eyes, 
not just your neck. Because when you crane your neck, you communicate something. Like when I craned my neck at that suspicious car, they stopped right next to me. And it was because they saw me turn my head. I know that they stopped because I turned my head and I looked at them. There was no other reason for them to stop right next to me. And in this case, I actually wanted to communicate that I was looking at them. I don't know why. I guess I wanted to communicate to them that they were being watched. I don't know if that's smart. Because the reason why I don't often do that, one of the reasons why I don't why I try not to crane my neck, especially if I'm walking at night. I mean, it applies as much during the day, but I think it's especially true at night, is because aggressive people will respond to you looking at them. I mean, there's a reason why one of the most common provocations is, what? What are you looking at? There's a reason why that provocation has been repeated and used to the point of parody to the point where nobody actually says that, although they do. But what what are you looking at? And if you're walking down the street at night, and I go on a lot of walks after dark, and you see somebody else walking, on, they're on the other side of the street, or they're a car doing something suspicious, if you turn your head and look at them, they might stop right next to you like that car did to me tonight, or if it's a person, they might look at you and go, what are you looking at? What? 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 And I, it's also another, another thing where if, if somebody passes by you, like this is how hypervigilant I can be, where if I'm walking down the street and let's say it's just me and somebody else, there's only two people, it's just the two of us, just the two of us. And if it's a man, I think if it's if it's a man that raises any kind of red flag with me, I never do this with women. I never do this with wimpy-looking, nerdy dudes. But if it's somebody, if it's a man who looks like he could be at all threatening, even just the possibility of it, once he passes by me, you know, once we pass each other, I turn my head just as if I'm looking at something off to my side. Like, I don't crane my neck around, but I turn my head just to the left or the right and, like, pretend that I'm looking at something to my side. And then I use what I call the mobility of my eyeballs to then look further. Like, I will look as far to my left with my eyeballs as possible while just gently turning my head to the left. And that way I can kind of see whether or not they stopped I can see whether or not they did a U-turn and are following me. I can tell if they're up to something without just turning my head all the way around. Because you don't want to show your cards in that situation. You don't want to seem paranoid or nervous or scared. You don't want to seem like you're engaging them in some way. So there's a sort of art to learning how to kind of turn your head and use your eyeballs to their full extent, to even strain your eyes sometimes to be able to see your surroundings without communicating that you're doing that. Maybe I'm just insane. Maybe I'm just really extremely paranoid. I'm sure that I, this sounds like a, this sounds like a handbook for paranoids and maybe it is. But the funny part about it is, like, 
I'm so paranoid that I'm paranoid about seeming like I'm paranoid. Now, but I would describe myself as hypervigilant, and I feel that I've just learned little techniques like that. I know I've talked about sometimes being the one to do a U-turn, or a 180, rather. If somebody is behind you for too long, especially at night. If you're walking and somebody seems to be taking the same turns you are. If they're behind you for way too long. At some point, you might want to just turn around and loop around so that you're behind them. And if they're not up to anything, they're going to think, oh God, this guy is a psycho. That guy just looped around so that he's behind me. But I know that I'm not going to do anything in that situation. I know that I'm not out to follow somebody. I know I'm not out to rob or hurt somebody. So I would rather make them scared. I would rather make them a little bit concerned about me because I know what my boundary is. I know what my goal is, which is to get where I'm going or to get my exercise. But I don't know what their goal is. And if they're an innocent person, if they're not deliberately following me, well, they should have found another route. Because if I'm behind someone for too long, I find another route. I don't take all of the turns they take. Even if it turns out I'm going to almost the same exact place. Even if it turns out we are neighbors. If I find that I'm behind someone for too long, I find another route. I do something. Because I'm not just conscious of my own paranoia. I'm conscious of other people's too, you know, and I, and I don't think paranoia is necessarily a, a completely bad thing. I mean, there's obviously a reason why we have a certain level of paranoia naturally. And you know, Rob Bresney, he wrote that book, Pronoia, which I found in a free pile at the perfect time in 2017. And the idea of pronoia is that forces aren't conspiring to hurt you. Forces are conspiring to help you. And both are true. But we don't often focus on pronoia because we have a negativity bias. And people don't tend to reinforce pronoia. And they don't tend to think in terms of pronoia. And that's not a word that I'm going to use for myself. I actually really enjoyed Pronoia. I really enjoyed Rob Bresney's take. I thought it was refreshing. There was a lot of dark things going on in my life at the time that I found that book. And there was a a lot of synchronicity related to my reading of the book. But I like that idea. I like that basic idea of remembering when it feels like forces are conspiring to your benefit. And the miracle of life is that. The miracle of being alive is, to me, I mean, some people see being alive as this great burden, like you were born into hell, and some people's situations are worse than others. But I do consider life a miracle, and evidence, to me at least, that something wants you to be here. And if something wants you to be here, sometimes it's going to work in your favor. And there are days where you're driving and you need to get somewhere and you hit red lights nonstop. 
you seem to have gotten on the red light road. You heard of the red light district. Well, this is the red light road. It means you're going to hit every single red light. It's like you left the house at the perfect time, the perfect rhythm of red lights to where you're just hitting every single one. And on days like that, especially if you're already stressed about something, you tend to think, oh, the paranoia kicks in and you think, this is all deliberate. This is the world, this is the universe conspiring to inconvenience me. It's conspiring to make my day worse because I'm having to stop at red lights. But if you hit nothing but green lights during your commute or wherever it is you're going, if you hit nothing but green lights, you might appreciate it in the moment, but you don't really feel like it's the universe conspiring to make your day better. Some people think that way. But most people don't tend to hang on it the same way they do a series of red lights. They're happy to pass through the green lights, but they don't really think about that as, oh, hey, today is working in my favor. And so there is that negativity bias that comes in when we feel inconvenienced or like bad things have happened to us. And what's strange about this feeling of dread I have right now is there's not one single source. I could name a bunch of sources. But I don't feel like there's one immediate thing that I'm dreading at this exact moment. And so I don't know that there's really a negativity bias to it. I don't feel like I'm dwelling on the negative. Yeah, I joke on here. I rant and rave. I'm always talking shit about something. But I don't feel like there's any one particular thing that has knotted me up. But that's the funny thing about feeling this way, is if I wake up tomorrow and I don't feel this way, I'm probably going to forget that I felt this way. I forget how bad I felt at the end of last February and, and the first half of March. I, and it's good that I forget. You shouldn't just always remember when you felt shitty. You shouldn't spend all of your time thinking, oh, remember four months ago when I had a breakdown and I felt shitty? It's good to kind of use that to remember that, oh, I feel better now, or I felt better for a while. But there's not really much use to dwelling on that time where you felt shitty, in the same way it's not useful to dwell on instances where someone did something shitty to you. Unless there's something you can actually do about it, it's not usually worth dwelling on some bad thing somebody said to you or did to you, especially as more time passes. I think it's the same thing for bad times in your life. But that happens with breakups too. You know, you go through a breakup and you feel physically ill sometimes it's like being ill where it's like oh i have this terrible feeling and it doesn't seem to go away and it doesn't feel like it's going away and it's lasted for quite a while now and then one day you don't feel that anymore one day you're over it and you don't usually sit around when you're over it thinking hey remember how shitty i felt it's like when the lights go out and they come back on you lose power and they come back on. And you don't just sit around like using your electricity thinking, remember when the lights were out? 
You might do that for an hour at the most, but pretty soon you're just back to business as usual. And that's you, you know, that's what you do. You're back to business as usual and you're, and, and business as usual means not dwelling on when you felt depressed, not dwelling on when you were brokenhearted, not dwelling on when you were incredibly angry. You don't want to forget it entirely because it will help you the next time you feel that way. And sometimes remembering when you felt shitty will help you avoid feeling that way again. Or help you avoid feeling quite as bad as you did that time. But I mean, I trick myself. You know, I trick myself too, where a couple of years ago, I was spending time with a girl who I really enjoyed her company. I really liked her. We were just kind of going on little adventure dates, basically. We never got heavily involved. Just these little kind of fun you know, those adventure dates that, you know, people who just start dating, they're always going on adventures. My friend Paula pointed this out once. She was like, you ever notice how whenever someone is is like newly dating somebody, they're always like sharing photos of their adventures. Oh, we went for a hike. Oh, we went here. And, And I'm not mocking that. And I know she's not either. But it is this kind of silly little thing that you see couples doing. or They're not even couples yet. They're like these little adventure dates. And that's what's so fun about liking somebody and initially going out with them is you tend to go on little adventures more. And so this girl and I, we were going on a lot of those little adventures. That was basically the, the whole of our relationship, honestly. Um, and I just ended up kind of, you know... I don't, I don't know. I think I remember seeing something she said about being ghosted and I realized she was talking about me. And that's the amazing thing is like, you don't even realize you're ghosting someone as the, as the kids say. It just sort of, the year waned on and we just, uh, I, I guess I just didn't have the energy. I mean, I've been celibate for a very long time by choice and just by fate. I've been celibate for quite a long time. And that makes it very strange to meet women I like because I I don't really want to rock the boat. I don't really want to change up my game, my system. But I, I go out lately and I don't I don't know if this comes through on this show, but lately I've felt like like I went shopping on like one of those a hundred degree days recently and I was like oh I can't wait to go to the grocery store there's gonna be there's gonna be so many hot women in the grocery store you know I I was looking forward to that and there didn't end up being any I don't think but uh I, I went in there I went into the grocery store and I said is this a grocery store or a sausage party but no, I, I mean, I still, I, you know, even though I'm celibate and I have this discipline and my life just really can't include a woman really in any way, you know, it really can't include any kind of commitment to romance. It, uh, you know, I still, I'm still, I, I, I'm like the Tex Avery wolf, like going to the grocery store sometimes, you know, on hot days, you know, I, I am lecherous still, 
but uh, with that, you know, like like uh, what I was going to get at though is like I didn't even know I ghosted somebody. You know, I just it wasn't a priority for me to turn this this little fun time I was having with a wonderful person into a commitment or into anything. And it wasn't even like one of those things like, oh, I, I fear commitment. I mean, the ball wasn't even rolling enough for that. You know, the ball wasn't even rolling enough to have that conversation. But it was weird to find out that like, oh, her perception was that I ghosted her. Which in someone, when someone says that, in their mind, if they feel ghosted, as people say, I'm not comfortable with that term yet. But when people feel ghosted, they feel like it's deliberate. And that's happened to me too. I mean, I've had people blow me off. I've had girls blow me off, and I think I take it personally. I don't get mad, but I just, it hurts your feelings. But you don't even realize when you've done that to somebody else. Because you weren't even thinking about it in those terms. Like maybe she thought we were playing a different game than I thought we were playing. I didn't realize I was playing a game. And I don't mean that in the sense that people talk about like people playing games. Oh, you know, uh, there's some girls and guys out there and you got to be careful of them because when it comes to love and romance, they were always playing games. I don't mean those kinds of games. I just mean like she was coming from the point of view of, oh, this is a potential relationship. And I was coming from the point of view of, oh, when, when she wants to hang out, I'll say yes because I always have a great time with her. But I'm not thinking beyond that. And she's the normal one. You know, she she's the normal one or the relatively normal one in that situation. Uh, adventures, you know, hanging out with somebody. Uh, you know, this, I, I'm really at a loss right now. I, I'm suddenly at a loss for how, how we got into relationship talk. Let me hit the vape and think about where to go. I mean, sometimes ghosting somebody, it would be like if I left this recorder on and didn't realize it and then published it and there was like an hour of silence, someone would be like, oh, that was an, it was intentional. Oh, he ghosted us. The guy from school night, the guy from every night to school night slash night school, a.k.a. the schoolboy, he started ghosting us. He's ghosting his listeners. All he does is release silence now. Meanwhile, I just made a mistake. I accidentally published a, a recording of nothing because I made a mistake or you know something like that. That's kind of how it felt like when I found out that someone thought I had ghosted them. And we're we're still friends, you know, we're we're still friends and everything, so there's no issue there, but um it bothers me actually. It bothers me actually that uh I wasn't in the right position I wasn't in the right place and and am still not for that matter to just get married. Cause that's kind of my philosophy now at this point in my life is I can't imagine just dating people ever again. I can't imagine just going through that. I look back at the days when I'd go on dates. I went on a date with a girl once I met her in an alleyway when I was drunk and she was sober 
and a mutual friend put us in. The only reason I knew she existed, the only reason I even remembered meeting her was because a friend took a picture of everyone in the alleyway that night. It was an alleyway outside of a bar and a, a mutual friend of ours took a, a photo of all of us. And when I saw it later, I was like, who's she? Who's that girl? Who I'm, I was kneeling in the photo. Who's that girl? Like her ass is like four inches from my face in this group photo. Cause I'm kneeling. Who is she? And through our friend, a date was arranged and I didn't even remember meeting this girl. And we went on a date and I was profusely sweating. I don't remember why it wasn't nerves, although I'm sure that didn't help. But I think I, you know, it was just, it was probably a hot night and I was just, I was profusely sweating in a Thai restaurant and I found out that she was a a recovering heroin addict and had an interesting story where she went from zero to a hundred. Like she had been this innocent girl raised in a very strange religion. She was a Jehovah's witness and she spoke fluent Spanish. Even though she was a white girl, she spoke fluent Spanish because most of the Jehovah's witnesses I found out, at least in this area are uh, Latino families. And so she spoke fluent Spanish. And so she was raised extremely sheltered in the strange environment of the kingdom hall. And then she got a job where one day I think she was in pain and her coworker, who was just some woman was like, Oh, you're in pain. Like here's a, an Oxycontin or something. She gave her a pain pill. And the girl that I was on the date with, like she, she really enjoyed that pill. I don't think this girl had ever done anything. I don't, I don't even know if she had drank and her coworker gave her a pain pill and then she, started buying more of them. And then she started embezzling. She, she worked in the returns department of a large wholesaler. And she was in the returns department and she would fake returns. She would make fake receipts, I guess, for returns and then pocket the money, apparently. And that was to fuel her Oxycontin turned heroin addiction. I don't know where that turned. I don't remember the full story where she went from Oxycontin to heroin, but she was already deep into pain pills. So it was just probably a simple maneuver to track down some heroin, but she ended up doing jail time. She did a year in jail and all kinds of other fucked up things happened, happened because of her addiction but she did a year in jail. And one thing that was really strange is on this date, I noticed that she kind of sounded like she'd been in jail. Even though she was raised in this sheltered religious environment and she wasn't using prison slang. It's not like she was sitting there on the date dropping prison slang. But there was this sort of toughness to the way she said things. And she, she was telling me how she played cards with these extremely tough women in jail because you, you spend a lot of time playing cards And her story was really interesting, but I found myself just thinking like, this is like when I was just like, I had totally embraced the fact that I was a drunk. This is right around the time when I had embraced the fact that I like to spend a lot of time drinking, getting really drunk. And I was just thinking to myself, how could I date this girl? First of all, like meeting her in person, 
even though I'd met her when I was blackout drunk, meeting her again, I realized I wasn't that attracted to her. Like I was more attracted to this photo of her, the way she looked in this dark alley that we were hanging out in, than I was actually being with her in the flesh. And so that didn't help. And I just realized like between how sheltered she was before her addiction I didn't judge her at all for being an addict or going to jail. I mean, I thought that was kind of cool. I thought the jail story was kind of cool. I thought the embezzlement was kind of impressive. The fact that this girl figured out just how to do that. Like this girl goes from zero to full-on addiction, embezzlement to support her addiction in a very short amount of time. It's sad, but it's also interesting. And last I heard, she was still sober, but we never talked again. We had a couple awkward times that... We ran into each other, but nothing ever came of it. I don't even think we kissed. And I wouldn't tell you anyway, because I don't kiss and tell. I don't kiss and tell. I don't kiss and tell. Uh, But I don't think I kissed her or anything. It was just, it was awkward. Actually, at the end of the date, I know this is very fascinating. At the end of the date, I was walking her back to her car, and I ran into a coworker of mine and his friends, and he was, they were drunk and they were like, what are you guys doing? And I was, I was dead sober because I knew from our mutual friend that she was, that this girl I was on the date with was sober. So I didn't want to be ordering drinks at the Thai restaurant if they even served alcohol. I don't know. But I did really want to drink that night. And at that point, dates for me consisted of getting a drink. It was a really easy way to break the ice without committing to dinner. I've never liked, I mean, I've talked at length about how uncomfortable I am in restaurants. And the idea of like eating food with somebody on a first date just doesn't do well for me. You know, the, the idea of sitting there, like looking at each other, eating isn't my idea of a fun date. And that's why when I'm on a food date, when I'm on a foodie date with a girl, I turn my back completely to her. I actually tell her, we're going to sit at separate tables when the food comes. No, there's not any, it's not, it's not that I'm grossed out by the fact that we're both facing each other eating, maybe a little bit. It's just awkward to me. So we, so we ran into these people I knew and they were like, Hey, we're going to go get a drink. And we, how about if you come along? And I was like, uh, I'm going to walk her back to her car. And I did that. And then I just went to the bar where I knew those people had it and got drunk and never, never had a follow-up date. That was also around the time, though, that I was learning, too, how much girls text you before the first date and what a bad idea that is. Because she got my phone number and she started sending me memes and asking me all these questions about myself And that was after we had already decided to go on a date. We had already made plans to go on a date. And so I was thinking to myself, like, don't be sent, like, like save this for the date. Save some of these questions and these things you want to tell me. I mean, the meme thing, I don't even know what to say. That's not my thing. You know, I I understand that that's just kind of the currency of our times or it was sending memes. I'm not. I'm not even beefing on memes. Beefing on memes sounds like a British television show. Beefing on memes. Oh, now that Downton Abbey's over, 
Now that Downton Abbey is over, I've been watching Beefing on Memes. Sounds like a British show. Uh, I'm not even beefing on memes, but it's just that's not necessarily what I want to communicate in when I don't know somebody. I don't want to communicate in memes because I have nothing to send her. I have no memes. But she was sending me so many messages that I just thought, like, save this for the first date. I know it's exciting when you've met somebody new and you're excited to go out with them for the first time, but you really want to want to save some of that. And I feel like I saw an article years ago, too, that even said studies, because they've done all these studies on online dating apps, and they found that when people talk too much before meeting, it usually had a... Uh, an unsuccessful result like the the people were less likely to hit it off were less likely to stay together if they communicated too much through messages before the first date and i don't need a an online dating app study to tell me that that's real i'm sure there's a million people out there who texted somebody a ton before the first date and now they're happily married but as a general rule again these general guidelines that you can follow I think you should save it. Like you don't want to make someone sick of you before the first date. And you also don't want to exhaust your list of talking points. Because on a first date, you're going to have to have some kind of material to riff on. And it's going to involve probably boring questions. Unless you have really good chemistry, it's going to involve a lot of boring questions. And sometimes you just have to get through that. Sometimes the fact that all you have to talk about is boring Tell me your life story. Where'd you go to school? How many brothers and sisters do you have? You know, sometimes you have to get through those questions in order to get into a good rapport with somebody. You have to shake off that awkwardness and you get through it. You feel each other out through small talk. But sometimes you have such good chemistry with somebody that you can just immediately launch into, you, you can immediately form inside jokes. And that's what it was like with this girl a couple of years ago where we were able to immediately launch into inside jokes right away. And that's why I'm not sad, but just a little disappointed that my life didn't really allow me to, to bring her in deeper. You know, it just, it sucks for me. And I don't know about how she feels, but uh, there was, you know, really good chemistry where we didn't have to go through the normal small talk, but uh, you know, one of the reasons like why we have small talk and why dates involve boring questions is just to kind of feel each other out. But you want to save those questions for in person, because after that first date, like if you decide to start having follow up dates, you're going to start going on adventures. No matter what. If you're a normal person, by the second, third, fourth date. If you even call it date. If you even call those dates anymore, I don't know. I like using the word date. It's old-fashioned feeling. I like the word date. Uh, but uh, date, date, I like the word date. That's what, I, that's what I tell girls, actually. That's what I used to tell girls on dates. I would say, they'd say, well, so tell me about you. And I would say, I just like the word date. I, I just like the word date. I like date. <laughs> I like date. Uh, but, uh, no, it's, it's, it's like, you know, you, by the third, fourth date, you're going to be going on adventures probably, and you'll be observing things and you'll be like, 
Did you notice how the guy who sold us ice cream had one blue eye and one green eye? Do you think he was wearing a contact lens? <laughs> you start forming uh, inside jokes. And so you start developing mutual experiences to talk about. That's my point, is that if you like someone enough to go on multiple dates with them, you start developing experiences together and you can talk about that instead of just, and then, and then the, the boring questions just come up naturally because you're doing things, but you're not sitting there in an interview scenario because that's what a first date is. It's basically a job interview. And when I look back on those days, it's very foreign to me now. Even though I feel like I understand it better. I, I feel like I understand the process of dating more now that I don't do it. We, of course I feel that way. But just put me right back in there and I'll know nothing again. Send me on a Tinder date and I will be stupefied and nervous again, I'm sure. Especially since I don't drink. Uh, and Tinder, you know... Online dating is magical. I've gone on link. I've gone on about that before, but you know, the only person that I ever met through Tinder seven or eight years ago brought me Batty last year. She gave me Batman, and of course, we we've been friends. We've known each other for many years since then. But that, to me, tells me that Tinder is certainly capable of producing magic beyond dating the results that you get from those things might not be the thing you're looking for as i've said before when you get on tinder you're saying a prayer you don't think of it that way because it's technological you don't think of it as mystical but when you get on there and make an account you are saying a prayer you're saying please god may there be a woman who i like and may she like me, God. You know, that's basically what you're asking when you get onto an online dating site or an app. But you don't necessarily know what the result will be. And the fact that eventually the one person I met on Tinder gave me my first dog, who has been honestly a lifesaver. Because sure, like I, I've thought about suicide in the last year. I don't think any more than I normally do. And I don't think about wanting to do it. I don't know. I don't understand people who don't think about suicide. I don't understand people where it doesn't just cross their mind as an option. And I think it's healthier for me to consider it as an option. Because when I, if I keep in mind that suicide is always an option... It means I'm going to do everything I can to avoid that option. Whereas if I don't consider suicide an option, there might be a moment where suddenly it feels like an option because I feel so bad. And I don't want that to be a, a new idea. I would rather suicide be something that I say, oh, suicide, I've thought, I've thought about that so freaking much since I hit puberty earlier. 
I found out that my best childhood friend and I both faked our own deaths at early ages. The difference is he was discovered. I wasn't discovered. My family had this thing behind our house called the Playhouse. It was kind of like a shed that had been made slightly livable. And one time I went in the Playhouse. My mom and sister were doing something else in the house. And I went in the Playhouse and I wrapped myself up in a blanket. And I had my first Swiss Army knife. And I laid my Swiss Army knife down next to my body, and I I move I, I positioned my body so that I would look like I was unconscious and dead. And I don't even know why I did it. I wasn't trying to, you know, there wasn't anything going on in my life that made me want sympathy or attention. I think I just kind of wanted to see what would happen. I wanted to kind of do a little experiment. I think honestly think it was as simple as that. I don't think there was anything deeper and darker than that. I simply wanted to do a little experiment at seven or eight years old where I laid there and pretended like I don't even know what I was pretending. Like I stabbed myself on accident. But I wanted someone to find me laying there wrapped in a blanket, motionless, with a knife laying beside me. But of course, there's no blood on the knife. There's no blood on me. So it was a stupid idea. But years later, I found out that my best childhood friend had done the same thing. And I think he did it a few years earlier. And despite being brothers for life, we didn't talk about it until a few years ago, probably within the last decade. Despite knowing each other for three decades since we were, I mean, we've, we've known each other since we were the ages that we were when we faked our deaths faked our suicides, our accidental suicides, whatever it is. And I found out, he told me, he was like, yeah, there was this time when I was a kid where I put a plastic bag over my head and I laid down in the living room motionless and my parents found me and freaked out. And he was doing what I was doing. There was nothing deeper or darker about it. He was doing a little experiment. And in his case, he was found. I wasn't, but just an interesting little thing. But yeah, I don't understand people who don't contemplate suicide just as an idea. And I do think I'm less likely to kill myself if I keep suicide somewhere in my mind rather than pushing it away completely. Because I feel like if you push suicide out of your mind completely, if you try to eclipse the fact that you can remove yourself from this miracle at any given time... I think it's it's more likely to stun you in those moments where it reveals itself. And I, I believe a lot of people who kill themselves are stunned. I believe that they are in kind of a stunned state. And of course, a lot of people who kill themselves think about suicide their entire lives. But I guess I, I just try to frame it in a certain way. Not as a realistic option that I can do at any given time, but something that's available. And like everybody in the world, I'm sure that I thought about it in part during the last year because of coronavirus and the circumstances everybody was forced into. I mean, isolation is one of the leading causes of suicide. It always has been. And I guarantee you it always will be. 
So anybody who didn't contemplate suicide, even just on an intellectual level in the last year, I don't know. I just don't understand them. I don't, I don't understand you. Uh, but the, the point is, is that having Batman here, not that I would have killed myself without him. I would not have killed myself. But, you know, just having Batman to take care of, Batman to lift my spirits, Batman to come up next to my ankles right now because he knows his name very well. You can whisper his name on the other side of the house and he knows, he hears it. But no, having him, you know, in some ways, I feel like he reinforced my desire to survive. Because who knows what the alternate reality is, even though I think I handled my mom's death very well. The idea of, hey, your mom died two and a half months ago, and now we're going to lock you in her house indefinitely, and you can't see anybody. You can't do anything. That would have been a different story if I didn't have a little chihuahua here. It might not have been a tragic story. It might not have been a bad story. It would have been a different story. And I do believe that Batman, you know, just reinforced my general desire to survive. Uh, And so you can say that because I met somebody on Tinder eight years ago, who it turned out was my neighbor, but because I met somebody on Tinder eight years ago, a little dog moved into my house at a time where I needed a little dog, this little dog, more than anything. That sounds pretty magical to me. That sounds right. And so you never know what online dating can lead to down the road if you think outside of, oh, if I don't meet my wife... This thing is worthless. This thing is... If I don't get laid tonight, this thing is worthless. You never know what will come down the road. And I didn't used to think that way. You know, I think my Korea trip, you know, which was an OkCupid date. I mean, you know, I barely knew her. We went on... We dated for basically a couple weeks. I don't even know the amount of time. It was definitely no longer than a month. We dated for a short amount of time before she went to go teach in Korea, career, South Korea. She had a career teaching in South Korea. And I went and visited her just for the sheer adventure of it. And I think that opened my eyes to the fact that, oh, yeah, this thing, it doesn't necessarily produce marriage or forever love. It doesn't necessarily produce a wedding ring or, or a, a, a hot night. But it can lead you on a strange, mystical adventure. It can bring a wonderful little creature into your life eight years later. So you never really know. And But again, I didn't used to have that attitude. And I, I still look back on when my friend Nick lived here. Who, who is, he's my childhood best friend who also faked his suicide. You have to figure, you know, how, how many kids that we knew faked our own suicide between the ages of like six and seven? It feels all too right that my best friend and I both did that without even knowing about it until we were adults. 
And we weren't even morbid. We weren't depressive. That's the funny part. Is It's like we weren't these super depressive guys. So it's funny that we did this little theater, this little suicide theater as children. But when he was living here, when Nick was living in the same town as I was, he had met this girl in college and uh, he was seeing somebody. There was some reason why he didn't have her like like there's some reason why like thing things never went anywhere like he never went out with this girl or anything and she was quite a quite a bit younger you know i want to say she was like 19 or 20 i mean now she might she was older than that i think she was like in her early 20s but she was younger than we were i think we were in our mid to late 20s and he so he met this girl who was really cool and then he basically like like tried to set us up which nobody has ever done successfully nobody's ever really set me up that i can think of but he, you know, and, and none of my male friends have ever tried to set me up, but he just thought, you know, he's my, my lifelong childhood best friend. You know, he just thought, oh, hey, you know, maybe, maybe Eric would like her. And we never ended up meeting up. Me and this girl never met up. I never followed up on it. But a couple of years later, I got a message on OkCupid when I was on there and it was from her. And she was like, are you Nick's friend? Are you Nick's friend? And I was like, yeah. And, you know, she was like, well, I'm, she'd gotten kind of sucked. I I don't know this girl. I've never even met this girl, but she had gotten sucked into some kind of like progressive Olympia semi polyamorous thing where like she had a boyfriend, but she was on OkCupid to meet other girls because there's a lot of arrangements like that in this town. I'm sure it's the same for any West Coast city, probably anywhere these days but there's a lot of these arrangements that I've, I've come across where the idea is basically that like the girlfriend is a bisexual and they're polyamorous with the stipulation that the girl can only see other girls but not other guys which I don't know I'm, I don't I don't like any kind of polyamory like do what you want but I, I don't want any part in any variation of it but anyway so she was on okay cupid even though she had a boyfriend and she was trying to meet girls but guess what she was looking at men because she messaged me and she was like hey like i could tell she was excited or something because like i you know both of us i think i don't know based on the way she interacted with me i kind of just assumed this but when i uh i remember always being kind of like ah i should have followed up i remember like like 2 years later thinking like oh i really should have followed up on that girl that nick wanted to set me up with i never followed up on that and now it's too late and i asked him about her at one point too like in the interim between him trying to set us up and her messaging me on okay cupid quite a while later in the interim there was even one time where i was like oh whatever happened with that girl and i don't even remember her name i can't even remember what her name is honestly but I said, like, whatever happened with that girl? And he was like, it's funny. She just asked me the same thing about you. So it's definitely some sort of missed connection story. And, uh, but even then we didn't, nothing ever happened then. I didn't follow it up then. But then she messaged me on OkCupid. It's like, I have a boyfriend, but I, I'm always looking for friends. I'm always looking for friends. I'm always looking for friends. God, I, imagine if she heard me. You know, I don't even know what she sounds like. She could actually sound like that. No, she seemed like a really sharp, positive young woman. And 
she was just she was just excited to finally actually be in touch with me and it was good to hear from her but the second i heard she had a boyfriend and was only looking for friends i i said to her well i'm not on here for friends which looking back i mean you know i don't know i mean i wasn't i was being honest i was being honest and I wouldn't have wanted to, like, like what would have happened? Would I have gone on a friend date with her? How do you become, if you're a young woman, how do you, how do you arrange to become friends with somebody through OkCupid? Like, how do you make that a reality? Like, it's one thing if she and I ran into each other at a party, and it was like, oh, that's you, okay. You were the one that Nick told me about. And then you just become friends because you met each other in person, like life put you together and you made, you became friends. In that situation, I, I you know, I, there was no bitterness or anything for me. Like if I had met her naturally, I'm sure we would have become friends. But just in that context, in the context of like her messaging me on OkCupid and, uh, Cupid and saying she had a boyfriend and just was looking for friends, I was just like, eh. I wouldn't say it wounded my ego, but it, there was definitely ego involved where I was just kind of like, eh, you know, like I'm, I'm not on here so that a, a random pretty girl who my friend previously tried to set me up with, you know, I'm not on here to make friends with you through a dating website, I guess was just my point of view. But, but at the time though, I think I had a more narrow view where I didn't necessarily see that, you know, even if romance wasn't part of the equation something good could have come from that I don't regret it you know why would I regret that but just something that I became aware of later and I mean I I hated being on those sites anyway I'm just explaining that interesting things can play out along those lines in the same way that interesting things can play out along any technological lines interesting things can play out involving books I already mentioned finding the pronoia book in a free pile and that kind of fitting right in with this dark mysticism that was going on and actually shining a small but bright light during an otherwise dark time. You know, so it can happen through books. It can happen through messages. The medium doesn't seem to matter. And you should never rule out the possibility that something can lead you somewhere unexpected even if the medium that is taking you there was designed for something differently. And that story, you know, you can see that with actual technology. I mean, the phone itself is a testament to that. The fact that something that was originally designed so that you can make phone calls anywhere you want turned into a personal computer in your pocket that you probably rarely use to make phone calls. Yet we still call it a phone. Would it be uncool to say, my personal computer, my handheld personal computer? It'd be wordy. But you can see where this thing that was designed for something else is now something else entirely. And you can see that with parts. Where someone's like, oh yeah, we, we discovered that if you... I'm trying to think of an example. I, I know there's tons of stories like this. Where someone invented something for one purpose and it ended up being used for something else. 
And that doesn't necessarily mean that its original purpose was erased. It doesn't mean that people stopped using it for its original purpose. It just means that it branched out and you could now access something else that was completely unrelated to the reason you were originally using it, completely unrelated to the original way that it was intended to be used. And I imagine the creators of dating websites they would probably readily say, oh, well, of course we factored in that other th- that something other than romance could come of this. But, but the whole idea is that you're finding sex or romance. At the very least, you just want attention or to flirt with people. And, uh, you know, so, it's, so I'm sure that, but I'm sure the creators like acknowledge that other phenomena can happen too, because... Of course it can. You just have to be open to it. Because there very well could have been somebody who said, hey, let's not turn the phone into a personal computer. Let's just keep it a phone. Let's just keep it a phone. Let's use this only for phone calls. And that person wouldn't have been wrong but they didn't really acknowledge the fact that this thing could develop into something entirely different. This thing could develop into something that really has very little to do with what we traditionally call a phone. Does that mean you should get on dating websites, dating apps, and be like, oh, every night to school night, uh, schoolboy said... uh, If I get on here, magical things will happen. Oh, he said if you get on Tinder eight years later, a beautiful dog gets set on your lap. You get a free dog. If you use Tinder, you get a free dog. You know, you know, I'm not even trying to say that. But hopefully the point, the broader point I'm making isn't too hard to understand. And you know what? Talking about this, it's actually relieved me of a little bit of my dread. Branching into this, branching into dating experiences, dating advice. I was talking about a couple girls and we ended up here. But that's what happens. Because the same thing is true for conversations. The same thing is true for discussion. The same thing is true for a monologue like this. Where if you if I tried to say, no, this topic is only about dread. The topic of today's school night, ep- night school episode. See, I'm doing so many every night to school nights that I'm calling this show uh, school night instead of night school. But uh, if you, if I were to approach this show and say that, okay, I'm going to start out talking about how dreadful I feel and how this suspicious car just perfectly captured that dread it perfectly punctuated that dread but that's all i'm going to talk about because that's what this episode's about this show would suck it it already sucks Uh, but uh no i wouldn't get anything out of that i wouldn't enjoy doing this i wouldn't enjoy conversations like the sorts of conversations i have with my friends if we were continually saying to each other That's not what I was talking about. That's not what we were talking about. We were talking about car prices. And now you're talking about movies. 
Let's go back to talking about car prices because that's what we were talking about. When you limit a discussion to one train of thought, you know, you're preventing other unexpected directions from manifesting. When you use a tool only for one purpose, you're possibly limiting that tool. You're possibly limiting yourself. So I think don't be afraid to get a different outcome than you originally intended to get when you did something, when you used something, when you set out to do something else. Don't be afraid of not getting that outcome. And that's what you hear from most people who are content with their lives and older. If you talk to people who are in their twilight years and genuinely feel like their life ended up in the right place, you'll notice that they'll tell you they had no idea it was going to end up the way it did. And when I'm feeling really good, like when I'm feeling really on top of things in recent years, that's exactly how I feel. But I'm young enough to know that if I live long enough, I'll very likely be saying the same thing those people are saying as long as I stay open to that possibility, as long as I stay open to the possibility that the outcome that I want might not be what I get, but what I get might actually be something far greater and more magical, more divine, more life-affirming. And there's a time and a place to stay on topic. There's a time and a place to just have a one-track mind. But when it comes to the way a human being, when it comes to the way that a human being has to navigate this world today, I don't think you can afford to treat any tool, any device, any conversation, any relationship, any thought as just one singular idea that needs to be followed religiously. I believe you have to be willing to let it go off in different directions. And the funny part about that is sometimes it does circle back around, and sometimes you do get what you originally wanted, but you had to take a roundabout way. Sometimes you do actually end up at least somewhere close to what you wanted, but it wasn't A to B. You had to do a full circuit. And it might have been windy. It might have been stop and go. There might have been red lights. It might have been red light street. But just remaining open to that. Being ready to notice. Because that's what openness is. And I don't have a better word than openness. Even though people throw it around. Openness is so open that people can throw it around and that doesn't take anything away from the idea of openness and being open-minded and being open. Because to me, being open is being aware but not rigid. Being open is being available to notice something when it appears. Because when you have a one-track mind, you stop noticing things. You stop noticing other openings. You stop noticing other possibilities. 
And for me personally, you know, I just don't feel like I can afford that. I don't feel like I can afford to live a life where I am ignoring other possibilities. And I try to apply that down the board. And I hope that someday I am able to apply that. I hope someday I am able to live that way completely. But if you can live that way even part of the time, that's good enough too, because it goes back to guidelines. If you keep in mind, if you keep openness in mind, you're going to notice things more often than you would if you didn't make an effort to remain open. It doesn't mean you'll be open all the time, but you'll at least be more open. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave This golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a 